You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing the influence of Christian nationalists within American politics. Who and what actually makes up the Christian nationalist movement and what are their objectives? What will their priorities be if Donald Trump remains president for another term? And what can people do who oppose Christian nationalism between now and the 2020 general election? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very happy to be joined today by acclaimed author and investigative reporter, Catherine Stewart. She is the author of the book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, available now. You can read an excerpt from her book, The Power Worshippers, in the upcoming October issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks so much, Brett, for having me. Of course. So let me start by saying congratulations on writing a really great and well-researched book about religion in American politics. Thank you Uh, so much. Of course. So, And I'm particularly glad that we're having this conversation now because I think as many people as possible should read your book before the upcoming election. You make quite the case about what is at stake for this country. So the book describes what you call a Christian nationalist movement, and I'd like to start there by having you explain what that means. So could you tell us what is the Christian nationalist movement, what are its component parts, and how might we recognize it? Sure. The first thing to know is that it's not a single religion. It's a political ideology. Representatives of Christian nationalism, the leadership, insist that the foundation of our government, the foundation of legitimate government, is bound up with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. So it's an anti-democratic movement. It's anti-pluralistic and anti-equality. You know, it basically says the United States is founded on the Bible and can succeed only if it stays true to this foundation. In, in addition to an ideology, it's also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population to get them to vote for hyper-conservative political candidates that the movement favors mm-hmm. and to concentrate power in the hands of a new elite. And... In the book, you distinguish that when you describe Christian nationalists, you're not just talking about evangelicals or white evangelical Protestants, right? That this is about political players. So can you explain how you're differentiating so we sort of have a sense of like who this is versus who maybe it doesn't necessarily describe? Sure. I mean, what unites the movement is not any specific um, sort of theological distinctions, but more Mm. common political vision. So it's not just about evangelicals. I mean, it does include many evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals, too. And it includes representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant forms of religion. Uh, Hyper-conservative Catholics, for instance, Mm. uh, some subsection of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements and Mm. others. I think it's really important to note that religious nationalism, it's not religion. It makes use of religion, but it's not just trying to achieve uh, religious, social, or cultural aims. It's really trying to achieve political power. Right. Great. So something you said made me think about one of the things that stuck out to me in the book. You say that 
we should stop referring to these political players as conservative Christians and that radical would actually be a better descriptor than conservative. And one of the most radical and alarming things to me in the book and that you mentioned just now is the number of of people, of Christian nationalists, who are not committed to democracy in America. And I think prior to this election cycle, I generally assumed that most people think of democracy as sacred in America and how in earlier generations, some Protestants portrayed Catholics as not compatible with American democracy because of their supposed allegiance to the Pope. But you warn us in the book about the ways that Christian nationalists can harm democracy. So could you say a bit about how Christian nationalists feel about democracy and and if what what ways they could potentially erode the future of democracy in this country? Right. I mean, it is a radical ideology. True conservative ideology would seek to preserve the institutions of value in our country that have served us over time. It would seek to preserve the integrity of the judiciary. It would prize the rule of law. This is a radical ideology because it doesn't seem to have much uh, respect for the Constitution as it was written, uh, has very little respect or no respect for representative democracy or even the two-party system itself. It really aims for a more authoritarian form of power and a system in which people with supposedly correct religious views have the power to discriminate against others of whom they disapprove and to receive public money for the purpose. Hmm. I think when you're looking at the movement, it helps to distinguish between the leaders and the followers. The individuals within the movement um, have a variety of positions that aren't always consistent. The followers, for instance, when you're talking about a really large group of people that have a lot of different aims. So when a lot of them vote for leaders who promise to end abortion, say, or reunite church and state, they, they don't necessarily want to reorganize our government in fundamental ways. They're really making a statement about what they value in themselves and, and mm. their identity. It's a form of identity politics for them. But for the leadership of the movement, they're really aiming for a system in which they and their political allies have much more power. They can rely on the government for a steady stream of public money flowing to their organizations. Right. I think some of those on the extreme end, like the hardcore, the Seven Mountains Dominionists, for example, they explicitly want a Christian nation. They want what they call the Seven Mountains or Molders or Pillars of Society to be dominated by a certain type of Christian who believes as they do. And mm. these, they identify these mountains or molders of culture as government, law, education, uh, finance, every area of influence that they describe as these Seven Mountains. But that's only, of course, a subsection of the movement. The leaders and other political allies who are sort of playing a more accessible form or acceptable form of politics, they're really looking for a more of a de facto religious national state, one where Christians of a certain type, right, right. <laughs> one where members of the certain approved varieties of religion are implicitly recognized as privileged in, in law, but where it's not done in an overly formal way. Well, and I think, you know, crucial to democracy is at least one viable opposition party. And I was thinking about your book when I was watching the Democratic National Convention this year, because there was a, a very clear 
at times heavy-handed focus on religion and on Biden saying that we are in a fight for the soul of America, and then lots of references to depicting him as a man driven by his Christian faith or his Catholic faith. But you say in the book that almost no Democratic leaders can realistically cede enough ground to earn the Christian nationalist movement's support. So could you explain, you know, why they are so tethered to the Republican Party that it it almost doesn't matter how much of a song and dance the Democratic Party does to present themselves as committed to religion or even committed to Christianity, that that won't change what this dynamic is? I mean, you're right. I just want to go back to what you said about the <clears throat> Democratic National Convention. Yeah. I think God has always been a fixture at both major sure. political party conventions. But I mean, did you watch the RNC this year? <laughs> no, I, I did not. That was really something special. I mean, it wasn't just the long list of religious leaders and activists invited to speak, which included two members of Billy Graham's family, an anti-abortion crusader who says ah. that husbands should control how their wives vote, etc. They were like, of course, all the politicians who wear their wow. sanctimony on their sleeves, like Pence and, and Pompeo, who was piped in from Jerusalem. But, you know, the difference was in the tone, a specific tone and variety of religious rhetoric that the RNC put on display. And that goes back to your point, your larger point about whether that cohort of Christian nationalist supporters will peel off. The God that showed up in the speeches at the RNC is one that apparently speaks exclusively to Republicans, that anointed Donald Trump Mm. to serve as a king among men and is deathly afraid of being canceled by twittering Democrats. It was really interesting. It was um, full-on paranoid. Donald Trump Jr. Hmm. said, you're not allowed to go to church. He said people of faith are under attack. They sort of, Trump himself lied Uh. and said that, you know, Democrats had no God in it and he took God out of the the RNC or something like that. Out of the Pledge of Allegiance. Out of the Pledge of Allegiance, indeed. I mean, they're really kind of casting this as, I think it was... um, Donald Trump Jr. himself, who said it's a choice between church, school, and work versus like looting and marauding. So they're basically casting themselves as, you know, being in the sort of death match against, uh, against chaos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it really points to the fact that the, the sort of most devoted Christian nationalist voters, you know, so-called values voters, are really listening to the leadership. You know, you asked earlier, why will they not support Democrats, right. even though they have plenty of God in, in their platform as well, and, right. you know, messaging about uh, religion, is that, the, you know, they're allied with the sort of libertarian, hyper-conservative economic wing of the Republican Party. The movement gets a lot of its financial support from that particular cohort. And so they're not going to support political leaders who support equality, certainly who support equitable taxes, who are trying to take on economic inequality who support things like environmental regulation, sound environmental policy, and things like that. So I think one of our impediments to sort of understanding the movement is that it's consistently cast as, a, as about the culture wars. It is not. The movement communicates to the rank and file about culture war issues, but in a way it serves as a distraction hmm. from the real aims of the movement, which are in, in large part about money and power. Right. And I think this is what's helpful in your book is that you do make this distinction between the sort of limited people at the top, often who are quite wealthy or families that are quite wealthy, who have a lot of power versus 
the millions of people who don't have that wealth, but who are voting along the lines of these, you know, multimillionaires, sometimes billionaires at the top who've aligned themselves with the Republican Party so strongly. That's true. I mean, as long as, you know, voters are under the influence of those leaders, they're going to continue to support politicians that support regressive economic policies, even if they don't necessarily know what they're doing when they vote to, say, ban abortion. Right. So I'm curious then what, if anything, happens when something, a public scandal happens between a very visible Christian leader who's tethered to the Republican Party. So I think leading up to the RNC, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr., his wife, and then this male business associate slash pool boy have a scandal and he has to step down from Liberty University. When these things happen, does that have any negative effect on Christian nationalist groups or or not? No, nothing happens. I mean, not only does nothing happen, but these types of scandals routinely take place. I mean, you know, I'm sure you or I could just start numbering them off. No doubt there will be some collective hand-wringing at Liberty University. But it's important to remember this is not a movement organized around any single central institution. And the leadership cadre Mm. shifts all the time. The Mm. movement really doesn't rely on this fixed collection of leaders but rather on a dense ecosystem of nonprofit, for-profit, religious and non-religious organizations like media, platforms, legal advocacy groups, policy groups, data organizations, and the like. I mean, you'd think that, you know, instances of Trump's own amorality would fracture the movement, but they don't. Let's just look at the headlines in last day. Trump saying the virus is deadly in private and playing it down in public and then hosting in-person crowded indoor rallies when he knows these events are likely to spread the disease. No one should ever vote for someone like that. But does anyone expect that to convince movement leadership to abandon their support for Trump? I don't think so. So then that's great. I'd love to sort of use what you just said about Trump and, and what we know about him to help us maybe understand not necessarily the movement leaders, but regular people in the pews of, let's say, evangelical churches, right? So not the DeVos family, but just, um, you know, committed evangelicals who I think, you know, ostensibly are trying to live a good life, probably oppose adultery, want to feel a personal relationship with Jesus and have a life modeled after that. How do they justify supporting Donald Trump in this election in 2020? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I've been to so many different campaign events where they're like, this election is about judges, judges, judges. The leaders Mm -hmm. of the movement understand that their aims are to a large degree advanced through the courts. And they unite behind Trump in large part because they know they'll put in the kinds of justices they want in place, not just on the Supreme Court, but in lower courts as well. I checked a couple days ago, 204 Article 3 Trump appointees had been confirmed by the Senate. That's nearly 25 percent of the judiciary. But so when leaders are talking to the rank and file, when they're talking to pastors about how they should turn out the rank and file to vote, It's all abortion all the time. (laughs) And I mean, it's, Uh you know, now it's, you know, the three issues. It's abortion, their idea of religious liberty, which is the right to discriminate against people of whom they disapprove. And LGBT issues, of course, is always a big thing for them. So if you can get the rank and file to vote on those issues, you can capture and control their vote and get them to vote for policies that they might not even really be that aware of. 
And I guess I have operated with an assumption that also operating here, particularly among white evangelical communities, is some race issues that they're more comfortable with his racist rhetoric or him being openly anti-Islam. But it sounds like that maybe is not the strategies that get deployed to get people from the pews to the voting booth, so that it's more a focus on abortion and LGBT issues and so-called religious freedom. Is that right? Or are there sort of the race and and anti-immigrant, anti-Islam things happening in the churches or not as much? I think for the religious right, if you look at the religious right in general, it's not really separable from race and racism, no matter how hard Mm. its leaders try to do that. I mean, heads of the leading right-wing policy organizations, uh, religious right groups. I'm thinking about organizations like the Family Research Council. They're always uh, often now trying to reach out to pastors of color in order to capture a subsection of voters of color. And they do make a special effort, for instance, with conservative Latino voters of faith, uh, especially in certain swing districts. But I think the fact remains that for substantial numbers of white supporters of the movement, the idea of religious heritage is very closely bound up with ideas of racial heritage and racial difference. And there's a ton of dog whistling that happens. And of course, you know, religious right leaders are fighting the culture wars on behalf of a political party that has made race-based voter suppression and race-based gerrymandering a key part of their political strategy. And not only that, they also make a great show of being equitable and open, but they paper over the ways in which hyper-conservative religion and racism reinforce one another. And of course, they've thrown their support wholeheartedly behind Trump, who who appeals very directly to the racism of many of his supporters. There's a cohort of leaders who, will, who are decrying racism, really, but they'll always okay. cast it as a sin problem exclusively. And they'll say the only solution to sin is the liberty of the gospel. So it's an unwillingness to acknowledge or take on structural racism. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, it's an individual flaw that needs to be redeemed versus all the systematic structural things. Exactly. They'll say racism is terrible and we're all racist because we're not all believers in the way that we think believers should uh, look and feel. Right. And since most people don't identify as racist, then it offers limited solutions. So you mentioned before that, you know, one of the things that Christian nationalists want and and, and have approved of Trump is his being able to appoint judges. Are there other things that Christian nationalists want to see happen if Trump should stay in office? Absolutely. I think, you know, when you're talking about the leaders of the movement, their vision involves a lot more power for themselves and their networks and for the political leaders that they support. I mean, they look forward to a time when Christians in their approved versions of the religion are in charge of major areas of government and society. And when those leaders answer to their spiritual guides, they're also looking forward to a time when they can rely on government for two things. Number one, a steady flow of taxpayer money, which they're getting under Trump, and number two, policies that privilege their religion. But I think that it's really important to remember that if Trump loses in November, this movement is not going away. It long preceded him and it will Mm. long outlast him. Mm. A number of politicians, right-wing politicians, owe their careers to the movement leaders who turn out congregations to vote on specific issues. And as long as that's the case, the movement will have representatives vying for power. I think the only way to sort of be back religious nationalism today as a threat in our society is for Biden to win, for Trump to be defeated with such a landslide of votes that 
they can't really cast this in that whole, uh, this is fake news, this is, you know what I mean, this is, they've stole the election right. from us. Only right. a really, a, a real landslide defeat will really, would be, that would be really effective in beating back the movement. It's interesting, I was giving a talk uh, a few days ago to a group in California, and there was a fellow there who, I think he may have voted third third party in the last election. He said, well, you know, I really want to vote the candidate that I really love. And, you know, isn't my vote just wasted here in California? And I said, absolutely not. I think that, you know, to contribute to that landslide, even if you're living yes. in a so-called safe state or so-called safe district is really important. I mean, I think that's important to to remember, right, that this doesn't start and end with Trump, that, that um, it's much bigger than that. In addition to getting out the vote in massive numbers, is there anything else that you might recommend to people who are listening or people who read your work uh, about who, you know, who don't support the Christian nationalist goals that you described and, and who want to keep democracy intact, what they could be doing between now and the election or beyond if they are interested in preserving a, a separation between church and Absolutely. state? Absolutely. The challenges that we're facing are political the solutions are political too. We shouldn't just be voting ourselves. We have to hold members of our inner circles accountable to vote. It's interesting. I go to a lot of you know right-wing strategy meetings and an Evangelicals for Trump event. Johnny Moore was saying to folks, "Become evangelists for the vote. You know, go, you know, talk to your neighbor and ask people about their plan to vote. Make sure they can vote <clears throat> as soon as, as as is possible. Don't leave it to the last minute." volunteer to babysit, volunteer to take people to the polls. I mean, there are things that we can do as individuals, but there are things that we can only do if we join together, like working with voting rights organizations, being involved in media and uh, messaging platforms and think tanks. We can be donating our money where possible to organizations that have legal components that are opposed to the politics of division and conquest that this movement represents. The one thing that the right does really effectively is they make people feel no matter how young or no matter how old, no matter you know if they're disabled, doesn't matter. Their vote really matters. And sometimes hmm. I think there's, you know, we, we need to sort of have that too. Here's the thing. This is not a majority of the population. It's a minority. It's an mm-hmm. a radical mm-hmm. and extreme minority of the public population, but they punch above their political weight precisely because they are so organized and vote in disproportionate numbers. I think about the work of somebody like George Barna. He's that evangelical pollster who's very closely embedded in the sort of machinery of the movement. He pointed out that the most devoted religious right voters, a cohort he calls SAGE-CONS, it's an acronym for spiritually active governance-engaged conservatives, the number only 10% of the population That's 10% of the voters. Hmm. But in the last election, 91% turned out to vote and 93% of those turned out to vote for Trump. So they use these tools to turn out the vote, like the data tools and messaging tools. But, you know, these tools are available to all of us. You know, religious Mm -hmm. nationalists are using the tools of democratic political culture to end democracy. But those same tools can be used to restore it. That's great. That's, I mean, and an important, an important message for for us to take. So thank you for all of this important information. My anxiety is a little bit higher, <laughs> but um, uh, but I think it's crucial that we have a clear picture of what's happening and what has been happening for some period of time. And I think I really like how you've ended here that there are tools that are in place 
uh, for people who don't support a sort of Christian nationalist vision of America. And there are things that people can start doing and that there are organizations people can tap yeah. into. So, so thank you for all of that. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Catherine Stewart, and our production editor, Anna Donch. You can find an excerpt from Catherine Stewart's newest book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, in the upcoming October issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. And you can purchase The Power Worshippers wherever you currently buy books. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us again next month. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.